Section twenty, chapter fifteen of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Section twenty, chapter fifteen. A declaration. I found it! I found it, Mama! cried little Charles Percival, running eagerly into the room with a plant in his hand. "'Will you send this in your letter to Helena Delacour, and tell her that is the thing that goldfishes are so fond of, and tell her that it is called Lemna, and that it may be found in any ditch or pool?' "'But how can she find ditches and pools in Grosvenor Square, my dear?' "'Oh, I forgot that. Then will you tell her, Mama, that I will send her a great quantity?' How, my dear? I don't know, Mama, yet, but I will find out some way. Would it not be as well, my dear, said his mother, smiling, to consider how you can perform your promises before you make them? A gentleman, said Mr. Vincent, never makes a promise that he cannot perform. I know that very well, said the boy proudly. Miss Portman, who is very good-natured, will, I am sure, be so good when she goes back to Lady Delacour as to carry food for the goldfishes to Helena. You see that I have found out a way to keep my promise. No, I am afraid not, said Belinda, for I am not going back to Lady Delacour's. Then I am very glad of it, said the boy, dropping the weed, and clapping his hands joyfully, for then I hope you will always stay here, don't you, Mamma? Don't you, Mr. Vincent? Oh, you do, I am sure, for I heard you say so to Papa the other day. But what makes you go so red? His mother took him by the hand as he was going to repeat the question, and leading him out of the room, desired him to show her the place where he found the food for the goldfishes. Belinda, to Mr. Vincent's great relief, seemed not to take any notice of the child's question, nor to have any sympathy in his curiosity. She was intently copying Westall's sketch of Lady Anne Percival and her family, and she had been roused by the first mention of Helena Delacour's name to many painful and some pleasing recollections. "'What a charming woman! And what a charming family!' said Mr. Vincent, as he looked at the drawing. "'And how much more interesting is this picture of domestic happiness than all the pictures of shepherds and shepherdesses and gods and goddesses that ever were drawn?' "'Yes,' said Belinda, and how much more interesting this picture is to us, from our knowing that it is not a fancy piece, that the happiness is real, not imaginary, that this is the natural expression of affection in the countenance of the mother, and that these children who crowd round her are what they seem to be, the pride and pleasure of her life. There cannot, exclaimed Mr. Vincent, with enthusiasm, be a more delightful picture. Oh, Miss Portman, is it possible that you should not feel what you can paint so well? Is it possible, sir, said Belinda, that you should suspect me of such wretched hypocrisy as to affect to admire what I am incapable of feeling? You misunderstand. You totally misunderstand me. Hypocrisy, no. There is not a woman upon earth whom I believe to be so far above all hypocrisy, all affectation. But I imagined, I, I feared— as he spoke these last words, he was in some confusion, and hastily turned over the prints in a portfolio which lay upon the table. Belinda's eye was caught by an engraving of Lady Delacour in the character of the comic muse. Mr. Vincent, 
did not know the intimacy that had subsisted between her ladyship and Miss Portman. She sighed from the recollection of Clarence Hervey, and of all that had passed at the masquerade. "'What a contrast!' said Mr. Vincent, placing the print of Lady Delacour beside the picture of Lady Anne Percival. "'What a contrast! Compare their pictures, compare their characters, compare—' "'Excuse me,' interrupted Belinda. "'Lady Delacour was once my friend, and I do not like to make a comparison so much to her disadvantage.' I have never seen any woman who would not suffer by a comparison with Lady Anne Percival. I have been more fortunate. I have seen one, one equally worthy of esteem, admiration, love. Mr. Vincent's voice faltered in pronouncing the word love, yet Belinda, prepossessed by the idea that he was attached to some Creole lady, simply answered without looking up from her drawing, "'You are indeed very fortunate, peculiarly fortunate.' are the West Indian ladies. West Indian ladies, interrupted Mr. Vincent. Surely Miss Portman cannot imagine that I am at this instant thinking of any West Indian lady. Belinda looked up with an air of surprise. Charming Miss Portman, continued he, I have learnt to admire European beauty, European excellence. I have acquired new ideas of the female character, ideas, feelings, that must henceforward render me exquisitely happy or exquisitely miserable. Miss Portman had been too often called charming to be much startled or delighted by the sound. The word would have passed by unnoticed, but there was something so impassioned in Mr. Vincent's manner that she could no longer mistake it for common gallantry, and she was in evident confusion. Now for the first time the idea of Mr. Vincent as a lover came into her mind. The next instant she accused herself of vanity, and dreaded that he should read her thoughts. "'Exquisitely miserable,' said she in a tone of raillery. "'I should not suppose, from what I have seen of Mr. Vincent, that anything could make him exquisitely miserable.' "'Then you do not know my character. You do not know my heart. It is in your power to make me exquisitely miserable. Mine is not the cold, hackneyed phrase of gallantry.' but the fervid language of passion, cried he, seizing her hand. At this instant, one of the children came in with some flowers to Belinda, and glad of the interruption, she hastily put up her drawings and left the room, observing that she should scarcely have time to dress before dinner. However, as soon as she found herself alone, she forgot how late it was, and though she sat down before the glass to dress, she made no progress in the business, but continued for some time motionless, endeavouring to recollect and to understand all that had passed. The result of her reflections was the conviction that her partiality for Clarence Hervey was greater than she ever had till this moment suspected. "'I have told my Aunt Stanhope,' thought she, "'that the idea of Mr. Hervey had no influence in my refusal of Sir Philip Baddeley. I have said that my affections are entirely at my own command.' Then why do I feel this alarm at the discovery of Mr. Vincent's views? Why do I compare him with one whom I thought I had forgotten? And yet, how are we to judge of character? How can we form any estimate of what is amiable, of what will make us happy or miserable, but by comparison? Am I to blame for perceiving superiority? Am I to blame if one person be more agreeable, or seem to be more agreeable than another?' Am I to blame if I cannot love Mr. Vincent? Before Belinda had answered these questions to her satisfaction, the dinner-bell rang. 
There happened to dine this day at Mr. Percival's a gentleman who had just arrived from Lisbon, and the conversation turned upon the sailor's practice of stilling the waves over the bar of Lisbon by throwing oil upon the water. Charles Percival's curiosity was excited by this conversation, and he wished to see the experiment. In the evening his father indulged his wishes. The children were delighted at the sight, and little Charles insisted upon Belinda's following him to a particular spot, where he was well convinced that she could see better than anywhere else in the world. "'Take care!' cried Lady Anne, "'or you will lead your friend into the river, Charles.' The boy paused, and soon afterwards asked his father several questions about swimming and drowning, and bringing people to life after they had been drowned. "'Don't you remember, Papa?' said he, "'that Mr. Hervey, who was almost drowned in the Serpentine River in London?' Belinda coloured at hearing unexpectedly the name of the person of whom she was at that instant thinking, and the child continued, "'I liked that Mr. Hervey very much.' I liked him from the first day I saw him. What a number of entertaining things he told us at dinner. We used to call him the good-natured gentleman. I like him very much. I wish he was here this minute. Did you ever see him, Miss Portman? Oh, yes, you must have seen him, for it was he who carried Helena's goldfishes to her mother, and he used often to be at Lady Delacour's, was not he? Yes, my dear, often. And did not you like him very much? This simple question threw Belinda into inexpressible confusion, but fortunately the crimson on her face was seen only by Lady Anne Percival. To Belinda's great satisfaction, Mr. Vincent forbore this evening any attempt to renew the conversation of the morning. He endeavoured to mix with his usual animation and gaiety in the family society, and her embarrassment was much lessened when she heard the next day at breakfast that he was gone to Harrogate. Lady Anne Percival took notice that she was this morning unusually sprightly. After breakfast, as they were passing through the hall to take a walk in the park, one of the little boys stopped to look at a musical instrument which hung up against the wall. "'What is this, Mamma? It is not a guitar, is it?' "'No, my dear. It is called a banjo. It is an African instrument of which the Negroes are particularly fond. Mr. Vincent mentioned it the other day to Miss Portman, and I believe that she expressed some curiosity to see one.' Juba went to work immediately to make a banjo. I find, poor fellow, I dare say that he was very sorry to go to Harrogate, and to leave his African guitar half-finished, especially as it was intended for an offering to Miss Portman. He is the most grateful, affectionate creature I ever saw. But why, Mamma? said Charles Percival, is Mr. Vincent gone away? I'm sorry he is gone. I hope he will soon come back in the meantime. I must run and water my carnations. His sorrow for his friend Mr. Vincent's departure does not seem to affect his spirits much, said Lady Anne. People who expect sentiment from children of six years old will be disappointed and will probably teach them affection. Surely it is much better to let their natural affections have time to expand. If we tear the rosebud open, we spoil the flower. Belinda smiled at this parable of the rosebud, which she said might be applied to men and women as well as to children. "'And yet upon reflection,' said Lady Anne, "'the heart has nothing in common with the rosebud. Nonsensical illusions pass off very prettily in conversation. I mean, when we converse with partial friends. But we should reason ill and conduct ourselves worse if we were to trust implicitly to poetical analogies. Our affections,' continued Lady Anne, 
arise from circumstances totally independent of our will. That is the very thing I meant to say, interrupted Belinda eagerly. They are excited by the agreeable or useful qualities that we discover in things or in persons. Undoubtedly, said Belinda. Or by those which our fancies discover, said Lady Anne. Belinda was silent, but after a pause she said, that it was certainly very dangerous, especially for women, to trust a fancy in bestowing their affections. And yet, said Lady Anne, it is a danger to which they are much exposed in society. Men have it in their power to assume the appearance of everything that is amiable and estimable, and women have scarcely any opportunities of detecting the counterfeit. Without ethereal's fear, how can they distinguish the good from the evil? said Belinda. This is a commonplace complaint, I know, the ready excuse that we silly young women plead, when we make mistakes for which our friends reproach us, and for which we too often reproach ourselves. The complaint is commonplace precisely, because it is general and just, replied Lady Anne, in the slight and frivolous intercourse which fashionable belles usually have with those fashionable beaux who call themselves their lovers, it is surprising that they can discover anything of each other's real character. Indeed, they seldom do, and this probably is the cause why there are so many unsuitable and unhappy marriages. A woman who has an opportunity of seeing her lover in private society, in domestic life, has infinite advantages, for if she has any sense, and he has any sincerity, the real character of both may perhaps be developed. True said Belinda, who now suspected that Lady Anne alluded to Mr. Vincent. And in such a situation, a woman would readily be able to decide whether the man who addressed her would suit her taste or not. So she would be inexcusable if, either from vanity or coquetry, she disguised her real sentiments. And will Miss Portman, who cannot, by any one to whom she is known, be suspected of vanity or coquetry, permit me to speak to her? with the freedom of a friend. Belinda, touched by the kindness of Lady Anne's manner, pressed her hand and exclaimed, "'Yes, dear Lady Anne, speak to me with freedom. You cannot do me a greater favour. No thought of my mind, no secret feeling of my heart shall be concealed from you. Do not imagine that I wish to encroach upon the generous openness of your temper,' said Lady Anne. "'Tell me when I go too far, and I will be silent. One who, like Miss Portman, has lived in the world, has seen a variety of characters, and probably has had a variety of admirers, must have formed some determinate idea of the sort of companion that would make her happy, if she were to marry. Unless, said Lady Anne, she has formed a resolution against marriage. I have formed no resolution, said Belinda. Indeed, since I have seen the happiness which you and Mr. Percival enjoy in your own family, I have been much more disposed to think that a union such as yours would increase my happiness. At the same time, my aversion to the idea of marrying from interest or convenience, or from any motives but esteem and love, is increased almost to horror. Oh, Lady Anne, there is nothing that I would not do to please the friends to whom I am under obligations, except sacrificing my peace of mind, or my integrity, the happiness of my life, by— Lady Anne, in a gentle tone, assured her, 
that she was the last person in the world who would press her to any union which would make her unhappy. You perceive that Mr. Vincent has spoken to me of what passed between you yesterday. You perceive that I am his friend, but do not forget that I am also yours. If you fear undue influence from any of your relations in favour of Mr. Vincent's large fortune, etc., let his proposal remain a secret between ourselves, till you can decide, from farther acquaintance with him, whether it will be in your power to return his affection. I fear, my dear Lady Anne, cried Belinda, that it is not in my power to return his affection. And may I ask your objections? It is not a sufficient objection that I am persuaded I cannot love him? No, for you may be mistaken in that persuasion. Remember what we said a little while ago about fancy and spontaneous affections. Does Mr. Vincent appear to you defective in any of the qualities which you think essential to happiness? Mr. Percival has known him from the time he was a man, and can answer for his integrity and his good temper. Are not these the first points you would consider? They ought to be, I am sure, and I believe they are. Of his understanding I shall say nothing because you have had full opportunities of judging of it from his conversation. Mr. Vincent appears to have a good understanding, said Belinda. Then to what do you object? Is there anything disgusting to you in his personal manners? He is very handsome, he is well-bred, and his manners are unaffected, said Belinda. But do not accuse me of caprice. Altogether, he does not suit my taste and I cannot think it sufficient not to feel disgust for a husband, though I believe this is the fashionable doctrine. "'It is not mine, I assure you,' said Lady Anne. "'I am not one of those who think it safest to begin with a little aversion. But since you acknowledge that Mr. Vincent possesses the essential good qualities that entitle him to your esteem, I am satisfied.' We gradually acquire knowledge of the good qualities of those who endeavour to please us, and if they are really amiable, their persons become agreeable to us by degrees, when we become accustomed to them. Accustomed, said Belinda, smiling. One does grow accustomed even to disagreeable things, certainly. But at this rate, my dear Lady Anne, I do not doubt but one might grow accustomed to Caliban. "'My belief in the reconciling power of custom does not go quite so far,' said Lady Anne. "'It does not extend to Caliban, or even to the hero of La Belle et Le Bête. "'But I do believe that in a mind so well regulated as yours, "'esteem may certainly, in time, be improved into love. "'I will tell Mr. Vincent so, my dear.' "'No, my dear Lady Anne, no, you must not, indeed you must not.' You have too good an opinion of me. My mind is not so well regulated. I am much weaker, much sillier than you imagine. Then you can conceive, said Belinda. Lady Anne soothed her with the most affectionate expressions, and concluded with saying, Mr. Vincent has promised not to return from Harrogate to torment you with his addresses. If you be absolutely determined against him, he is of too generous and perhaps too proud a temper to persecute you with vain solicitations, and however Mr. Percival and I may wish that he could obtain such a wife, we shall have the common or uncommon sense and good nature to allow our friends to be happy their own way. You are very good, too good. But am I then to be the cause of banishing Mr. Vincent from all his friends, from Oakley Park? 
"'Will he not do what is most prudent to avoid the charming Miss Portman?' said Lady Anne, smiling. "'If he must not love her. This was at least the advice I gave him when he consulted us yesterday evening. But I will not sign his writ of banishment lightly. Nothing but the assurance that the heart is engaged can be a sufficient cause for despair. Nothing else could, in my eyes, justify you, my dear Belinda, from the charge of caprice.' "'I can give you no such assurance, I hope.' "'I believe,' said Belinda, in great confusion, "'and yet I would not for the world deceive you. "'You have a right to my sincerity.' "'She paused, and Lady Anne said with a smile, "'Perhaps I can spare you the trouble of telling me in words "'what a blush told me, or at least made me suspect. "'Yesterday evening, when we were standing by the riverside, "'when little Charles asked you, "'Yes, I remember, I saw you look at me. "'Undesignedly, believe me, "'Undesignedly, I am sure. "'But I was afraid you would think. "'The truth? "'No. "'But more than the truth. "'The truth you shall hear, "'and the rest I will leave to your judgment "'and to your kindness.' "'Belinda gave a full account of her acquaintance "'with Clarence Hervey, "'of the variations in his manner towards her, "'of his excellent conduct with respect to Lady Delacour. "'Of this, by the by, she spoke at large. "'But she was more concise "'when she touched upon the state of her own heart.' and her voice almost failed when she came to the history of the lock of beautiful hair the windsor incognito and the picture of virginia she concluded by expressing her conviction of the propriety of forgiving a man who was in all probability attached to another and she declared it to be her resolution to banish him from her thoughts lady anne said that nothing could be more prudent or praiseworthy than forming such a resolution except keeping it Lady Anne had a high opinion of Mr. Hervey, but she had no doubt from Belinda's account, and from her own observations on Mr. Hervey, and from slight circumstances, which had accidentally come to Mr. Percival's knowledge, that he was, as Belinda suspected, attached to another person. She wished, therefore, to confirm Miss Portman in this belief, and to turn her thoughts towards one who, beside being deserving of her esteem and love, felt for her the most sincere affection. She did not, however, press the subject farther at this time, but contented herself with requesting that Belinda would take three days, the usual time given for deliberation in fairy tales, before she should decide against Mr. Vincent. The next day they went to look at a porter's lodge, which Mr. Percival had just built. It was inhabited by an old man and woman, who had for so many years been industrious tenants, but who in their old age had been reduced to poverty not by imprudence, but by misfortune. Lady Anne was pleased to see them comfortably settled in their new habitation, and while she and Belinda were talking to the old couple, their granddaughter, a pretty-looking girl of about eighteen, came in with a basket of eggs in her hand. "'Well, Lucy,' said Lady Anne, "'have you overcome your dislike to James Jackson?' The girl reddened, smiled, and looked at her grandmother, who answered for her in an arch tone. "'Oh, yes, my lady,' "'We are not afraid of Jackson now. "'We are grown very great friends. "'This pretty cane chair for my good man was his handiwork, "'and these baskets he made for me. "'Indeed, he's a most industrious, ingenious, good-natured youth, "'and our Lucy takes no offence at his courting her now, my lady, I can assure you. "'That necklace, which is never off her neck now, he turned for her, my lady. "'It is a present of his, so I tell him he need not be discouraged.' though so be she did not take to him at the first, for she's a good girl, and a sensible girl. 
I say it, though she's my own, and the eyes are used to her face after a time, and then it's nothing. They say fancies all in all in love. Now, in my judgment, fancies little or nothing with girls that have sense. But I beg pardon for prating at this rate, more especially when I am so old as to have forgot all the little I ever knew about such things. But you have the best right in the world to speak about such things, and your granddaughter has the best reason in the world to listen to you said lady anne because in spite of all the crosses of fortune you have been an excellent and happy wife at least ever since i can remember and ever since i can remember that's more no offence to your ladyship said the old man striking his crutch against the ground ever since i can remember she has made me the happiest man in the whole world in the whole parish as everybody knows and i best of all cried he with a degree of enthusiasm that lighted up his aged countenance and animated his feeble voice and yet said the honest dame if i had followed my fancy and taken up with my first love it would not have been with he lucy i had a sort of a fancy since my lady so good as to let me speak i had a sort of a fancy for an idle young man but he very luckily for me took it into his head to fall in love with another young woman and then i had leisure enough left me to think of your grandfather who was not so much to my taste like at first but when i found out his goodness and cleverness and joined to all his great tenderness for me i thought better of it lucy as who knows what you may do though there shall not be a word said on my part to press you for poor jackson and my thinking better is the cause why i have been so happy ever since and am so still in my old age ah lucy dear what a many years at same old age lasts after all but young folks for the most part never think what's to come after thirty or forty at farthest but i don't say this for you lucy for you are a good girl and a sensible girl they're my own granddaughter as i said before and therefore won't be run away with fancy which is soon past and gone but make a prudent choice that you won't never have cause to repent of but i'll not say a word more i'll leave it all to yourself and james jackson you do right said lady anne good morning to you farewell lucy that's a pretty necklace and is very becoming to you fare you well she hurried out of the cottage with belinda apprehensive that the talkative old dame might weaken the effect of her good sense and experience by a farther profusion of words one would think said belinda with an ingenious smile that this lesson upon the dangers of fancy was intended for me at any rate i may turn it to my own advantage happy those who can turn all the experience of others to their own advantage said lady anne this would be a more valuable privilege than the power of turning everything that is touched to gold they walked on in silence for a few minutes and then miss portman pursuing the train of her own thoughts, and unconscious that she had not explained them to Lady Anne, abruptly exclaimed, "'But if I should be entangled, so as not to be able to retract, and if it should not be in my power to love him, at last, he will think me a coquette, a jilt. Perhaps he will have reason to complain of me if I waste his time, and trifle with his affections. Then is it not better that I should avoid, by a decided refusal?' all possibility of injury to mr vincent and of blame to myself there is no danger of mr vincent's misunderstanding or misrepresenting you the risk that he runs is by his voluntary choice and i am sure that if after farther acquaintance with him you find it impossible to return his affection 
he will not consider himself as ill-used by your refusal. But after a certain time, after the world suspects that two people are engaged to each other, it is scarcely possible for the woman to recede, when they come within a certain distance, that are pressed to unite, by the irresistible force of external circumstances. A woman is too often reduced to this dilemma. Either she must marry a man she does not love, or she must be blamed by the world. Either she must sacrifice a portion of her reputation, or the whole of her happiness. The world is indeed often too curious and too rash in these affairs, said Lady Anne. A young woman is not, in this respect, allowed sufficient time for freedom of deliberation. She sees, as Mr. Percival once said, the drawn sword of tyrant custom suspended over her head by a single hair. And yet, notwithstanding, you are so well aware of the danger your ladyship would expose me to it, said Belinda. Yes, for I think the chance of happiness in this instance overbalances the risk, said Lady Anne, and we cannot alter the common law of custom. And as we cannot render the world less gossiping or less censorious, we must not expect always to avoid censure. All we can do is never to deserve it, and it would be absurd to enslave ourselves to the opinion of the idle and ignorant. To a certain point, respect for the opinion of the world is prudence. Beyond that point it is weakness. You should also consider that the world at Oakley Park and in London are two different worlds. In London, if you and Mr. Vincent were seen often in each other's company, it would be immediately buzzed about that Miss Portman and Mr. Vincent were going to be married, and if the match did not take place, a thousand foolish stories might be told to account for its being broken off. But here you are not surrounded by busy eyes and busy tongues. The butchers, bakers, ploughmen, and spinsters who have composed our world have all affairs of their own to mind. Besides, their comments can have no very extensive circulation. They are used to seeing Mr. Vincent continually here, and his staying with us the remainder of the autumn will not appear to them anything wonderful or portentous. Their conversation was interrupted. Mr. Vincent returned to Oakley Park, but upon the express condition that he should not make his attachment public by any particular attentions, and that he should draw no conclusions in his favour from Belinda's consenting to converse with him freely upon every common subject. To this treaty of amity, Lady Anne Percival was guarantee. End of section 20, chapter 15. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Phoenix, Arizona, May 2011.